chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, we do ask that our hearts would be fertile soil for your word to fall upon. May the seed bear, fall upon us and bear much fruit. Lord, we ask that your spirit would accompany your word. Uh, pierce us, change us. Uh, may our lives be adapted. May our minds be renovated by the word that we heard, uh, we hear today, and may we be called to diligence. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. I went down a rabbit hole recently. Not a literal one, like my dog Todd <laughs> digs rabbit, into rabbit holes in our woods. Uh, my digging was digital. And the rabbit hole that I went down into was the brave new world of AI, artificial intelligence. Maybe you've fallen down that rabbit hole recently as well, because like Alice falling into Wonderland, there are things down that hole that I had not imagined were possible. For example, our daughter, Ella, is a junior in high school, finishing up her first college class on inorganic chemistry, doing it online. And you know that at the end of a course like that, everything is building and to its most complex. The work gets harder, the questions get harder. If you miss a concept, if you miss a step, it's hard to figure out where you went wrong. Well, Ella had reached that point last week, and she told me, I've read the whole chapter, I've watched all the lectures, I can't find what I'm missing. There's something I'm missing. Missing concept, missing step, I can't figure out what it is. Now, I remembered enjoying chemistry. Remembered being the key word. Uh, that memory was from a long time ago now, and I don't think it quite mentally registered with me how long ago that was, because I walked up to my daughter like the have no fear dad is here swagger that, that one has, uh, only to walk away asking, is there someone we can call? <laughs> and had I remembered Jacob Phillips is a chemistry PhD, I would have called you, Jacob, if I had remembered that. I remembered you from Bear Creek, Alabama, but I did not remember the chemistry bit at the, at the time. Having forgotten about Jacob, I turned to the world of artificial intelligence. And I went to one of those AI chatbots and typed in, hello. 
and it said, hello, how can I assist you today? I said, okay, if you're as smart as everyone says, tell me step by step how to solve this chemistry problem, please. <laughs> and it said, sure. And then it was da 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 off to the races, step one, step two, step three. And I tell you, from there, we figured it out. We figured out the missing concept, the, the step we didn't know, and it was pretty impressive. But then I climbed a little farther down into the rabbit hole and discovered the world of AI-generated art. It's one thing for a computer to tell you how to solve an equation. It's quite another thing for an artificial intelligence to create an original work of art. What would take a person hours and involve thousands of creative choices, the AI does in seconds. As I saw this, I genuinely feared for the jobs of all the graphic designers out there. Because now, people who would struggle to spell the word beautiful are typing in descriptions of whatever they want, and 45 seconds later, the AI has this beautiful image that they've requested. One person I saw asked for a woman picking flowers by a country road against the backdrop of a hill and a country cottage, and this is what it produced in less than a minute. There it is, an original work, exactly what she said. Another person typed in just, just these words, retro, little girl, hugging a teddy bear. And in 45 seconds, they had four images to choose from. Now, I don't know how good you can see these, but do notice one thing that artificial intelligence cannot do yet, cannot do well. It's the human hand. There's something about the human hand that AI cannot figure out. The, there's always more fingers than needed, more knuckles than they're supposed to have. Uh, but there, there it is. When I was making the graphic for this sermon series, the image I wanted was people walking into the sunset. And here is what was generated for me. Picture, there it is. I, I brought this picture to our staff meeting, and universally it was rejected because it just felt too creepy. <laughs> it's just too, and, th and that may be the general critique, is AR art is just too creepy. Uh, now, what's really going on with AI art? There are many artists, many graphic designers who are protesting that AI-generated art is theft. What the computer is doing is scouring the internet for artistic elements created by human artists and then stitching those together, those man-made elements together to suit the prompt that was typed into the system. I don't know if that makes a solid legal argument for theft or not, but it does make a certain theological argument. And the argument goes like this. If we rightly understand all human art as an act of sub-creation, that is, God is the original creative artist, and all that human artists can do is, as sub-creators, work within what he has already made. If we rightly understand all human art as an act of sub-creation, then AI-generated art is an act of sub-sub-creation. Do you see that? 
You understand what that means? If all art flows from the creation's creator, and we can only work inside the system that he has made, then all AI art is just like the next cascade of the waterfall coming down. Similar to the way it is with us and our maker, AI can only work inside the system that we have made. So, at the end of the day, all AI creativity still points back through us to the original source of all creativity, to the image of God in man. That's what enables us to create something like artificial intelligence in the first place. But the image of God can be marred, can it? You know that, right? The image of God can be marred. This all isn't without danger, is it? And maybe you already see one of the big dangers. Dystopian writers have seen it. If AI reaches the point where it hands us everything we need, everything we want with ease then a future generation could reach the point where they don't know how to do anything. They don't know how to apply themselves to anything with diligence when everything comes to them with ease. We can easily become infantile, like children. Everything we need and cry out for is put into our hands with no effort on our part. Type your command into the prompt and the AI does the work for you. Being given everything we need with ease runs the danger of killing all diligent effort and making us lazy. But I want you to notice this morning, that's not the way it works in God's economy. The contrast we're going to see here in 2 Peter could not be sharper. There's a sharp contrast between the dystopian possibilities of AI, giving everything we need to us, and the precious promises of God providing us with everything we need. We saw last Sunday in verses 3 and 4 that God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Verse 3, God has already given us everything we need to live the life we're called to live. But, unlike AI... God giving us everything we need doesn't kill our drive to be active. It doesn't keep us as infants. God giving us everything we need for life and godliness doesn't kill off our diligence. It calls forth our diligence in life. And that's the first thing I want you to see this morning. In verses 5 through 7, the call for diligence. The call for diligence. Peter has just said in the previous verses that God has given you everything you need. Then he says, verse 5, Now, for this very reason also, God has given you everything you need. For this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness and in your brotherly kindness, love. Unlike the dystopian future where AI provides us with everything we need and makes us all like dependent children, God providing us with everything we need results in diligence. 
diligence. It results in maturing and growing our character. We see that here in these verses. Now, there's a lot of character qualities linked together in a chain, beginning in verse 5, going all the way to the end of verse 7. You see that. And it would take all of our time today and more if we were to look in depth at each one of these. So, we're not. Maybe at this week's Wednesday feast day we will, but we don't have time to unpack all these today besides making two observations. We can make two observations about verses 5 through 7. If you're taking notes, these are like two quick subpoints to this main hitting, the call for diligence. And here's the first of these two things. Number one, diligence is applied to every quality. Diligence is applied to every quality. When verse 5 says, applying all diligence in your faith, it doesn't stop with faith. The need for diligence doesn't stop with the first quality here. It would be foolish to think our faith requires diligence, but our moral excellence does not, right? Moral excellence requires diligence. You can be sure that gaining knowledge, verse 5, requires a certain amount of diligence. Am I right, graduates? It it does. Perseverance, self-control, requires a lot of diligent effort. Perseverance is really just diligence sustained over a long time. All the qualities in verses 5 through 7 require that we apply diligent effort to cultivate them in our lives. They don't develop by accident. God giving us everything we need for life and godliness doesn't mean we're passive. We aren't passive. We're called to be diligent. We're called to be active. We're called to be growing all the time. Now, that doesn't mean that we trust in our own diligence. We know that our most diligent efforts will not save us, right? You know that. We don't trust in our diligence. We trust in Christ. We trust in his diligence. We trust in his resolute effort to save us. It's his diligence for us that fuels our diligence for him. And what does our diligence for him look like? Our diligence for him looks like cultivating this kind of fruit in our life. Verses 5 through 7. This kind of character. Our diligence for him looks like presenting to Jesus as an act of worship this kind of character. A character that has been thoroughly reshaped by the gospel. So, subpoint number one, diligence is applied to every quality you see here. Number two, notice faith's position in this chain. Notice faith's position in this chain. It's significant that the chain of all these qualities begins with faith. Why is that? It's important because you can't jump into this chain anywhere you want to. You can't jump into this chain somewhere in the middle. You can't start with moral excellence and skip over faith, can you? You can't start with moral excellence. Uh, You can't come to God saying, I'm just going to clean myself up first, and then I'll believe, right? I'm going to get my life all cleaned up before I'm going to come to God in faith. That's not how it works. 
Now, you can make some changes to your life, make some behavior modifications happen without faith. But without faith, guess what? Your heart really hasn't changed. You might give yourself some rules that change your behavior, but your heart, what your heart believes and wants, really hasn't changed at all, apart from faith. Rules can't change your heart. And so, it won't be long before you revert back, before you burn out on your rules. If you try to change your life without changing your heart, you'll find it's like this. It's like cutting a flower from its root. You cut a flower from its root, what happens? It's gonna, you might have the flower for a little bit, but it's going to wither. It's going to die. You might be able to maintain some outward show and look good for a time with rules, but you've cut the flower off from the root, from the root that nourishes it. If you don't start with faith in the gospel, then you're like a cut flower. You're cut off from the heart-changing nourishment that feeds the moral excellence, that feeds the self-control, that feeds everything else that follows in these verses. It's important to see that this chain begins with faith. If you're here this morning just exploring Christianity, exploring what it would mean for you to follow Jesus, you need to see this. You need to see that it all begins with believing. It all begins with faith. It has to begin with faith because nothing else, no rules, no principles, no self-help steps have the power to actually change your heart. Rules can't change what we want. Principles don't have that power. Only in changing what the heart believes can we change what the heart desires. So, don't miss faith's position in this change, in this chain. It is necessary that it comes first. You can't skip ahead. You got to begin with believing in Jesus, believing the gospel. That's the call to diligence. The second thing I want us to see this morning is the promise of fruitfulness. The promise of fruitfulness. Look at verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you ever feel like you're just spinning your wheels in life? Do you ever feel like your life is bearing no lasting fruit? Do you ever feel like you're useless? Like you're useless in God's kingdom? Well, God has a promise for you. Peter points to the way of escape from the rut that you're stuck in. And the way out isn't to keep wallowing in the mire of self-pity, saying, woe is me, I, I'm useless, I feel useless. If you're stuck in the mud, Christ offers you his hand out. And he promises you this. If you will begin with faith and apply diligence in cultivating these qualities, you will not be useless. You will not be unfruitful. Abide in me, Jesus says, and you will bear much fruit. 
there is a promise of usefulness and fruitfulness here. To which you might say, that sounds like a great promise, Pastor. But how do I take hold of it? What does that mean, to take hold of this promise? How do I start to cultivate fruitfulness and usefulness in my life? I'd say to you, be encouraged because you've already started. Just by being here, hearing God's word is an act of cultivation. The Bible says the word of God is like seed. It's being scattered upon hearts. The spirit takes that seed and begins to break up the hard ground within us and prepares us for future fruitfulness. That's happening now. But it doesn't stop now. As you go from here, you apply diligence. You apply diligence by processing and applying the word that you've heard. Processing and applying it to your heart, to your character. You don't just need the opportunity to have the word poured into you. You also need the opportunity to diligently and actively pour it out. Pour it out into others. That's why we build into the rhythm of our life together every week a time on Wednesdays of actively applying God's word. If you've never come to a Wednesday feast day, you are missing out. You're missing out. You're missing out on a great means of grace in the weekly rhythm of your life. As we sit around the table together, what are we doing? We are diligently hammering out how a certain truth that we're taking from the Bible, how a certain truth should change our hearts. That's happening week by week. No one is there asking some AI program to do the heavy lifting for us. We're all diligently doing the work, sharing from our hearts, from our experience, and together we are part of God's means of fulfilling this promise that we will neither be useless nor unfruitful. There's a lot I could say here, a lot of applications I could give, but to keep it simple, I'm just going to give you this one, one application. Come this Wednesday at 5.30 and see if applying God's word to yourself and to others doesn't make you feel useful, doesn't make you feel fruitful. Even in that very moment, you feel it. I'm being used. I'm being fruitful. Come. I can't give you an easier application than this. Just show up. Just show up intending to be diligent in applying God's word and see what God does this Wednesday. That's all I'll say on the promise in verse 8. Let's now look at the problem in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Here's the third thing I want you to see. The problem of forgetfulness. The problem of forgetfulness. Verse 9. One of our chief problems in this life is that we are monumental forgetters. Right. We are monumental forgetters. 
you ask yourself, how can my children who know the truth make such self-destructive choices? It's because in that moment of temptation, they've forgotten. They've forgotten something. They've forgotten the gospel. They've forgotten what they've been taught. They've, been, they've forgotten they've been bought with a price, that their body is not their own. In the moment of crisis, Jesus is nowhere on their radar. All of us make self-destructive decisions when we forget what matters most. It's no different with you or with me. Why do you respond with anger, with fear? What's going on when you're selfish or lustful? What explains that grudge that your heart can't ever seem to let go of? What's the problem? The problem is that you're forgetting something. You're forgetting your purification from sin. You're forgetting the costly forgiveness that was freely lavished on you. If you remembered that, that grudge would lose its hold on you. Your heart can't be blown away by the great forgiveness you've been shown and at the same time cling to petty grudges that you hold against others. Remembering the one should drive out the other from your heart. Remembering God's love for us while we were his enemies should drive out the hate we harbor toward our enemies. So, whenever you come to your senses after committing some obvious sin, instead of asking yourself, what was I thinking? Ask yourself, what was I forgetting? What was I forgetting? What, if I remembered it in the moment, would have motivated my heart to resist the tempter, to see through his lie, to flee from temptation, to heal instead of wound with my words? What gospel realities am I forgetting? If we can become proficient at remembering and diligent at applying the gospel to our point of need, then we will be neither useless nor unfruitful in God's kingdom. We will be choice instruments in the Redeemer's hands. Artificial intelligence can do a lot of things for us, but it's never going to do this is it? We've got to use our own minds. We've got to work on our own hearts in order to diligently remember the gospel and live it out. No one can do that for us. There's one more thing that requires diligence in our passage, and it's our fourth and final point. In verses 10 and 11, we see the way into the kingdom. The way into the kingdom. Look at verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. 
Some of you have asked me, what Bible translation do you preach from, Pastor? Given my choice, I always go to the New American Standard, as my father did before me. In England and France, I preach from the NIV, the New International Version, because when you label your Bible translation the American Standard, you unintentionally place some geographical limits on where it will be used in the world. Europeans don't want their Bible translation to be labeled American any more than we want ours to be labeled European. Am I right? I'm right. But now that I'm back in the States, I've gone back to my favorite Bible translation for such a time as this. Verses 10 and 11. The translators of the New American Standard really want you to see when the biblical writer repeatedly uses the same word. And this is one of those cases. The Greek word for diligence that Peter used in verse 5 makes a reappearance in verse 10. Why is that significant? Kids, you know why. Kids, right? When your parents tell you again and again to do something, what does that mean? It's important, right? You should do it. Husbands, if your wife repeats herself... If she asks you to do the same thing more than once, what does that tell you? It's important. You had better do it. Peter is repeating the same command using the same word. We are called to be diligent in cultivating our character, and we are called to be diligent in entering the kingdom. Verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Now, there might be a question forming in your mind because it's forming in my mind. If God's, if it's God calling and choosing that is determinative here, not our calling upon God, not our choosing him, how can any amount of diligence on our part make certain that God has done his part. It's, it's God's work after all, not ours. How then can any amount of diligent effort on our end ever make certain of God's calling and choosing us? If that's a question forming in your mind, I'll acknowledge that that's, that's a good question. The Bible acknowledges that that's a good question. And thankfully, It's a question that the Bible gives us a lot of good answers to. I'd point you to the book of 1 John, the very next book after 2 Peter, as a great guide for how we go about making our calling and election sure. How do we fulfill this command? How do we do it? John says, like detectives, we look for the evidence. Diligently look. We diligently look for evidence of God's grace in our lives. Evidence like this. Do you freely acknowledge your sin? John says, if we say we have no sin, we lie. And the truth is not in us. This is an evidence of God's calling and choosing you. Do you humbly acknowledge sin in your life? Here's another evidence, according to John. John says, we know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. 
Do you love the people of God? Do you love the people in this church family? Is your heart filled with love for the global church? If so, it's evidence of God's calling and election. Here is perhaps the most self-evident and compelling piece of evidence. John says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Are you overcoming the world? Maybe, you say, but what does that look like to overcome the world? First John tells us what that looks like. John says, this is the victory that overcomes the world. You know what it is? Our faith. Our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? How do you know that you're an overcomer of the world? You know because you're believing the gospel that overcomes the world. Let's apply 1 John's answer now to 2 Peter's question. How do I know that God has called me? How do I know that God has chosen me? You know because you're believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And you're diligently staking all your hope upon him. That's how you make certain of his calling and choosing of you. That's how you make your calling and election sure you believe the gospel. You diligently look and rejoice in the evidences of his grace at work in your life. And this includes even things like God's discipline. Hebrews 12 says, God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there that his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If everything was easy, if everything in your life fell into, every desire fell into your lap as though dropped there by some AI drone, then you should worry. You should worry if you're without discipline. You should worry if you're without diligence. God promises to give us everything we need, but not to make us infants, dependent upon others serving us. God calls us to diligence. He calls us to be active. He calls us to, to work and to do. He has provided us with everything we need in order to grow us from infants to mature men and women. He fills us up so that we might pour our lives out in serving others. I don't know what the future holds with advances in AI, but I do know who holds the future. I know God calls his people in every age to be active, to be diligent, and to be fruitful. Verse 11, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that in our hearts there might be a growing knowledge and certainty of your great gifts, of your great grace. God forbid 
that this would, in our sin, lead us to laziness, lead us to passivity. Lord, may you grant by your grace that your every provision would lead us to to diligence, to be all the more diligent to apply your grace, your gospel to our heart and lives, to have our minds renovated by your truth. Lord, we ask this morning that you would be at work in every heart. You are always working. We are your workmanship. May we realize that this morning. And may we take great hope in believing in a Savior who he who began a good work in us will be faithful to perfect it to the end. May we be active in applying your truth and your grace to our life. May that be, uh, may, we do, may we do that as we heard your word this morning and as we go from here, may we process, may we apply it, may we come back to Wednesday feast day excited and ready to apply your truth to our lives. Uh, Lord, may we go forth from here with diligence. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.